0: So I'm not afraid to try new things at all, as you can probably see by my resume. And in fact, after a while, once something becomes routine, I almost get bored with it and need to change it in some way to continue to feel like I'm learning. I would say from that perspective, I lean more toward the growth mindset. I mean, there's things I failed at and there's things I will continue to fail at. Like I see somebody do something and then I think, well, what if you did it this way? I wonder if that would be better. So then I want to go try it. Very much an experimenter in that respect and not afraid of digging in and and figuring something out. And and not necessarily with a, a preparation for failure mindset either, but just like, what can we learn about this?
1: In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other.
2: Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every T-shirt sized company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America.
1: Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Amy Bradshaw. Amy recently joined Capital Bridge, LLC, and currently serves as the company's chief financial officer. In her new role... Amy is responsible for scaling the organization's financial and accounting infrastructure to support the growth of the overall company. Prior to joining Capital Bridge, Amy worked with technology and service companies to evolve the accounting and finance functions. She has experience building strong teams and implementing new systems and processes to enable growth. Amy is a strong leader with a passion for developing her team members and for finding creative solutions to challenging situations. Amy graduated summa cum laude from Miami University with bachelor's degrees in manufacturing engineering and accounting. She also earned a Master of Business Administration from the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Amy.
2: Amy, welcome to the Corporate Couch
0: excited to be here thank you jock
2: yeah we we had a we had schedule changes so i think this is our maybe third try to do this so i'm, I'm excited to have you on you've had a, a great career and i've i've uh, i think we met during the uh, midway through the pandemic maybe i don't know early in the pandemic but you've become one of my favorite people that i've met during uh, that time period and congratulations you're the first cfo on the podcast
0: thank you
2: another career first for your uh, great accomplishments (laughs) so let's start um i always like to ask a fun question Uh, what's the um, worst attire or lack of attire you've ever seen on a, a professional zoom call oh gosh
0: You know, I spent the majority of my pandemic days actually in the office and have not been that much of a Zoomer, despite the world going that direction. So I don't have any like crazy Zoom experiences. Maybe I'm the only one in the world.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, there's been a few. uh, There's been some crazy ones, you know, no pants. Somebody did an interview with no shirt on. Um, didn't get the job, uh, obviously. Uh now we're uh, remind me, were you with um De Pasquale and uh partners? Deepasqually
0: more, yeah, during Even the more, pandemic. Okay.
2: okay. Yeah,
0: we went home for like 90 days. Okay. And but but we're the, the culture there, very in person culture. And so like it it's almost like we didn't adapt Zoom. We just started talking to each other on the phone. Um, but even like teams meetings and things were not, we didn't do a ton of that. So then became the impetus to go back to the office because for at least the core group of people, um, we were only out of the office, probably 90 days. And then it was like, okay, we got to get back to it. And so instead of adapting to virtual, we just went back to what we knew, which was in the office in person and so, yeah, I, I escaped a lot of the Zoom era. Okay,
2: interesting. <laughs> yeah, so for those non-Kansas City uh, li- uh, listeners, De uh, D Pasquale & Moore is a law firm and a very prominent um, attorney firm here, uh, 20-ish, 25 attorneys, I think. Probably
0: uh, more now, and they're yeah. actually expanding regionally uh, outside of Kansas City.
2: And everybody in Kansas City knows it as Better Call Mike. Mike's got this. Mike's got yeah. this. There you go. So,
0: yep. there's a lot of commercial for him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you know, it's the podcast is the corporate couch. So, not that we get dive deep into your childhood, but when growing up, Amy, where'd you grow up and what did you like to do as a child?
0: So, I grew up in a small suburb on the west side of Cleveland, Ohio, a very rust belt type area, very industrial. The community was, um, had a lot of history in steel production and manufacturing of automobiles. My dad is a 35-year veteran of Ford Motor Company, and my mom was a nurse. Very good Catholic families, and very. I have one sister, lived in the same house my whole childhood, very stable. Um, very hardworking parents. My um, both of my parents extremely hardworking, and you could not escape that work ethic <laughs> as a kid. Uh, it was just ingrained in in who I became. And uh, let's see. I mean, I did the normal kid things, music and brownies and sports. And but I was I'm I've been a nerd since day one. Very driven academically, and you know, like the sick feeling when you got be was that's kind of ruled my childhood, but very loving family and good friends, small town, you know, not a lot of trouble you could get into. Uh, at least I didn't find it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's for another podcast possibly. But yeah, um, yeah, what made you gravitate to school so much?
0: Um, I don't know. I just, it was like, it was, a, it was how I measured myself, right. was the grade card and doing well. And that, I mean, I was, I was always incented by my parents to do well, but never not pushed, you know, like some kids I think are are pushed pretty hard by their families. I just, it came easily to me. And then when I did well, I just wanted to keep doing well. Um, so I would, you know, bring my backpack of 10 books home and I would sit at the table and do my homework. And I was the youngest, and my sister is six years older than I am, so she graduated and was out of the house, and my mom worked full-time, and my dad worked full-time, so I spent some time, you know, my afternoons to myself watching General Hospital, doing my homework in front of the TV. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Before my mom got home. Yep.
2: Are you familiar with the book, uh, I think it's Growth Mindset by... Carolyn, uh, Carol Dweck of Stanford.
0: I've seen it. I don't think I've read it.
2: Well, it, it has an interesting premise, but uh, I did well in school also. But and the and the premise of this book is if you do well in school and usually that's certain subjects or, you know, it could be all subjects, but sometimes it's just a few. But you, uh, it, it's a, basically the book's premise is a fixed mindset is. You know, you do well in certain things and you're, you're praised for that for the most part. And, but that doesn't allow you to, um, explore other things because you're not going to be good at them at first. So sure. you hold back and you don't, you don't have a growth mindset. Like a growth mindset is, I want to try so many things. I, I know I'm going to fail and that's okay because that's the only way to grow. Yeah. Where did you, categorically, where were you in, in those two, uh, dimensions?
0: So I'm not afraid to try new things at all, as you can probably see by my resume. And in fact, after a while, once something becomes routine, I, I almost get bored with it and, and need to, to change it in some way to continue to feel like I'm learning. So I don't, I would say from that perspective, I would lean more toward the growth mindset just because I mean, there's things I failed at, and there's things I will continue to fail at. Um, but but that learning and that, like, well, that, like, I see somebody do something, and then I think, well, what if you did it this way? I wonder if that would be better. So then I want to go try it. Um, very much an experimenter in that respect, and and not afraid of digging in and and figuring something out and and not necessarily with a, a preparation for failure mindset either but just like what can we learn about this you know like
2: yeah it's great um, I love it it's it's fun yeah so uh as a as a as a child uh, did you have any aspirations like I'm gonna be this when I'm an adult what what was this if if you had it had something
0: when I was younger I really wanted to have a store because I wanted a cash register <laughs> you know like I like I don't know if that's my first pull toward like uh being in business but uh like that concept of having a place where people could come and you provide a service and then like that the community aspect of it too not just the transactional nature of it um but yeah and then as I got older I don't I don't there was never like I want to be an accountant or uh it was kind of like exploration of what 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 do i think i could be good at and to this day one of the things that astounds me professionally is how our society is asked 17 year old kids to make this gigantic investment decision about college and career with absolutely no preparation or understanding of like what that means to them financially um you know professionally career-wise that it's a huge decision to make, um, and then you know you kind of make it and pray that at the end of four years you end up with this good job that you like, and that leads to an economically viable career in front of you. So it's been something I, I've revisited several times in my own life of like, how did I get here?
2: Oh <laughs> well, no, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. As you know, I I taught this past semester at the University of Kansas and. I tell the students, because even at 22, they're going to pick up a job. I said, look, you're going to change careers, most likely. Don't worry about your first job. It's the one you're supposed to have. Now you can do things to help your chances and get more things you want to do. But, uh, you know, there's no wrong decision, I tell, you know, even if you I had that job for three months, it's not you're that learning. You had a you needed that learning in your life. So um, yeah. So then uh, you, you, so you graduate high school and being the, you know, overachiever you are, you, you actually pick two uh, majors. It looked like you graduated with an accounting degree from Miami uh, university and then also a manufacturing engineering. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's been five people that graduated from that university with that dual major. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it was common, but tell, tell us about that choice.
1: Yeah.
0: So I basically couldn't decide what I wanted to do. Um, My dad, more of an engineering background, and it just interested me a lot growing up, you know, design. And it's funny, I'm kind of two people in one because I'm your typical accountant in some ways, but then I have a very creative side as well. And I think that engineering program kind of fed that ability to be creative and to, to, to design and make and think about creating things. When I decided I was gonna double major, but then I also wanted to graduate in four years and every semester would have to approach the dean of the school to sign my permission slip to take more than 22 hours of credits in a semester. And he would look at me and say, Amy, what are you doing? And I would say, I'm trying to get out of here in one piece. um, It was a big investment and time and energy and summer schools in between but i just i couldn't choose and i didn't want to choose and it it was fun i had like my accounting study group and then i had my engineering study group and it also gave me a chance to kind of you know meet more people and and have a a more variety of experience i did i think the opposite of what a lot of college kids do i studied really hard for three years got my job in this fall of my senior year. And then I kind of took my last semester like easy. And I actually took microbiology 101 my last semester because it was a requirement for a liberal arts degree. And I took it pass-fail and I had to go check my grade at the end to make sure I passed because I may have gone to three classes. And I was like, oh my God, if I don't pass, and my mom just like, and my mom, I have to tell my mom I didn't pass college because I failed microbiology. (laughs) Oh,
2: my God. Uh, Amy, most people in that situation, if they needed a class, they would take like film, (laughs) <laughs> or uh, golf, you know, beginning golf. Or I didn't something. have a
0: science credit.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. Because I'm saying microbiology, really?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was horrible. I am not a biology person. So I was like, I put it off and put it off and put it off and finally couldn't put it off anymore. But yeah. Yeah. So it was fun. I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but looking back on it, it's just so much. So much, such a good experience and a lot of fun. And then I decided I really didn't wanna do either accounting or engineering when I graduated and I took a job doing something completely different.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're gonna to get to that. But uh, uh, one more thing about, so we're, uh, you know, this, you're know you going to school in the, in the 90s here and were they still kind of more male dominant uh, majors, accounting and manufacturing engineering?
1: Um,
0: the engineering school was for sure. It was probably seventy five percent guys to twenty five percent girls. I'd say my accounting classes were more evenly distributed yeah. okay um at that point point. and most of my study group on the accounting side was probably girls at the time
2: so you you go to one of the you know, top four consulting companies in the in the world p w c How did you secure that job and what what was your first job
0: yep So on campus interviewing, I had my pick really of interviews because I had really good grades and I had, you know, good majors. And so pretty much that was a good that was the good result of all the hard work that I had put in up to that point. And so my senior senior year fall just started interviewing on campus. And I don't know, I had a handful of job offers, a variety of different positions. Some, you know, audit on the audit side for accounting firms couple engineering jobs, you know, like there's quite a bit of manufacturing engineering um, opportunities in that part of the country, that Cincinnati, Dayton, like um, upper Kentucky area. There's quite a few things out there. I will tell you, I went on a tour for one job and I walked into a manufacturing plant in Northern Kentucky and I was like 21 year old girl and I felt like a piece of meat. And I mean, just walking through a factory and like, just the, you know, the eyes and this, like, I felt like, I don't know that I can do this. Yeah. Um, You're all even dressed though I know up. I can do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, I don't, I don't know that I can see myself coming here every day. And so I was kind of shied away from that. I know those, all those places aren't like that, but at that time for me, I was just was like, I don't, I don't know that I can. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking a job with Price actually in their consulting practice. And I went my first three months. They sent us to school in Tampa, Florida, and I learned to code COBOL. Wow. So I became a programmer wow. straight out of school, and that uh, yeah, was like paid college because they paid you to live in a corporate apartment and have a car and go to basically go to school all day and then we worked hard and then we went out and partied all night. Like we were still college students. uh, It was fun because their program brought all of the people from their start classes from all across the country um, to one place. So even though my little group from Cleveland was probably five or six people, we met up with people all over the country from San Francisco and Denver and Chicago and DC and our start class, I want to say was 30 to 40 people. And it was such a tremendous experience because during those days, you, you flew Monday through Friday to your client site and you worked, there was none of this Monday to Thursday, you know, like you were first thing Monday morning to late Friday. And they would also pay for you to go if you didn't want to go home, but you wanted to go somewhere else, they would pay for your cost of your ticket unless it was more. So that group we, once we graduated from the little training class and we started working, like one weekend a month, we would meet in a different city in the U.S. and we would just go hang out somewhere and have fun and never go home, essentially, except to do your laundry.
2: <laughs> I love it. So uh, do you keep in contact with any of your start class years later? Uh,
0: a couple people. Yeah. One, Actually, one of the guys in my start class actually was when a friend of mine from Miami and he grew up not far from me uh, in Cleveland. And I haven't talked to him in a while, but we, um, yeah, we've, we kind of followed each other for a bit there. It's a, actually, one of the guys in my start class was, I think, the chief product officer for DocuSign when they went public. Some other people that, you know, friends on Facebook or whatever, and have lived all across the world. And it was a, it was a really, good group of people and still consider some of them
2: friends for sure. So did you leave PwC completely to go pursue your MBA at that point about I did. Yeah.
0: yeah. So you had to when when I went to Darden you had to go full time. They wouldn't let you work while you were in school. So I did the I did the Monday through Friday travel thing for probably about 18 months before I was like, man, I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life. I mean, that's the career you're signing up for when you stay on in that type of role, especially at that time. And I had been on probably been on my first project was probably six to nine months. And then my second project was a year or more. And it's, it had pros and cons, right? Because you know, you're somewhere for a year and you feel like, you know you kind of get to be part of the client at that point and then you okay well we're done here you move on so you go to somewhere else it was but they were definitely longer term projects and then i just decided one day i was like i don't know that i see myself doing this forever and kind of on a whim i applied to business school uh, and i took the gmat and i did pretty well and i applied very late in the year uh to like three schools and i ended up actually getting waitlisted to darden and the, I think I didn't find out until late June or early July that I got accepted. And I never forget going home and telling my parents I got in, and my dad's like, You're going. Like, there's no choice or going. I had, I mean, our family was very blue collar. And my dad put himself through college after he was already working full time. Um, my mom did the same thing. She had gone to nursing school and then went back and got her bachelor's degree while she was still working full-time and so this concept of you know graduate school and was was like you have to do it and so I was okay (laughs) so I probably quit my job with very little notice because I had to go find a place to live and get ready to move and but yeah it was that was a life-changing decision that I made kind of on a whim uh, that I think worked out well for me
2: and and, and what, what made it life-changing
0: um i will say darden was an extremely humbling uh experience for me going into that i had never been in such a diverse just intelligent experienced group of people from around the world and looking back on it i wish i had waited longer to go back to school I was one of the youngest people in my class and I think just the the shock of like I don't even know if I'm average here like I'd always been smart you know and kind of on like the the outer edge of achievers and then I come into this group and I'm like struggling to be middle of the pack in some ways and that was intimidating and I had a guy in my class who was like probably in his 50s, had been a Washington Post reporter, had covered wars and like seen things that I hadn't even dreamed existed yet. We had a Navy SEAL that had probably done who knows what in strange places in the world, you know? And here I am, this girl from this tiny town in Ohio who thinks she's, you know, got something. And um, I mean, it was it was a great experience. I met tons of people from around the world and and learned so much in so many ways. Um, but I came out of there, I think a little dinged up con- with confidence from a confidence perspective and took a little bit to kind of get my feet up under me again after that, but came out with a good job, doubled my income, you know, day one from where I had left my first, my last job to my starting salary and my new job. And, um, so, you know, there's pros and cons, <laughs>
2: No it's it's interesting the number one question i get from my either my students this past semester or i do a guest lecturing for for some friends of mine but the number one question and it's 100% of the time you know should i get my mba and you know i would love to hear your opinion on it i mean Obviously, Darden is, you know, you know, a Princeton, a Harvard, a Stanford in that category of, you know, best MBA schools in the country, in the world. Uh, but what what's your take uh, on that question from a college student?
0: I think it depends on what you want to do. I learned so much about so many different aspects of the business world and Darden, you didn't really, you didn't focus. You They had a general business curriculum. So like your first year, everybody took all of the same classes, no matter what. Your second year, you could choose electives that were more you know, in line with kind of what you wanted to do, but you could also take whatever you wanted. There wasn't, it wasn't like a marketing thing and all you did was take marketing classes. So it forced you to be well-rounded. And that I think is, has been invaluable invaluable to me, even now in my career, I can sometimes think back to situations or case studies we did or things that I hadn't ever had to think about before, but now I'm encountering a situation where it's like, okay, let's think, think about this. I've seen this somewhere. And that just exposure and opening your mind to different things and learning what, you know, how different perspectives that you can take. I think is um, is a great experience and can be worth it, depending on how you t- intend to apply that. I don't know that it's for everyone, but I also think that in the world today, everything leads back to money somehow right. and, and business in some perspective. And so the more you can bring to that, uh, more experience you have to apply that, I think you're better off.
2: So you graduate Darden and, Double your income? Was that Arthur a. Anderson now Accenture? Was that the position?
0: So, yes. Yeah, so, I um, took a job out of Darden with a guy who was a partner at Arthur Anderson in Atlanta and was trying to start almost like an investment banking group within Arthur Anderson. And so, I moved to Atlanta and I to age myself. So, I graduated Darden in the year 2000, like right when the internet bubble burst. And that was not the time to be trying to start an investment bank. um It was very challenging, so we spent probably almost a year you know working at it we I got my series seven, my series sixty three and we did a lot of kind of foundational work, but the it was it never really kind of got us anywhere um and so we were just kind of chugging along. And then for personal reasons, I decided to move uh, back to Virginia. And so I was probably there maybe a year. And it was a good learning experience It's kind of like you talked about know, like you take your job, and you just learn from it. And you um, take the pieces that are helpful to you And, and part of what you decide when you have experiences like that, I think is what you don't want to do anymore and you steer away from those things, sometimes those are the most valuable lessons you can learn, I think, from 100%. from jobs. It was a good experience. I didn't, I don't know, just, it was unfortunate the economic environment of the time kind of prohibited that from becoming what I think it could have been ultimately. And then obviously all the trouble that Anderson ended up in uh, over the Enron thing kind of later made that even more unlikely to continue. But yeah, so... Moved then uh, up to Virginia and took a job, at actually a government contracting firm there, worked for the CFO, kind of a financial analyst role. And it was really interesting because I was, again, you know, they kind of put me in this job and, and like figure it out and just kind of a right hand of the CFO and got to see a bunch of different reporting. They were doing some m and some treasury work and just exposure to what what it means to be in the finance function.
2: Yeah. So it looks like uh, just based on uh, your kind of your career journey, you really had a breakthrough uh, professionally outside of your obviously getting an MBA from Darden, but it looked like Cerner was kind of a, a big kind of, where you really stepped up and did some great things. Why don't you kind of run through your career there and what you learned and what you did?
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. So we moved to Kansas City, um, and I had one interview at Cerner, and got the job offer, and didn't know anybody else here. And so, I was like, wait, okay, one
2: I person interviewed you?
0: Uh, well, I had one round of interviews. I'll say okay, I think I round. interviewed with okay. four people at the same time, uh, you know, like at the at the same session, okay. and got the job. And it was a finance role. They called it kind of a divisional controller. So you had a segment of the business that you were basically in charge of, of understanding from a finance standpoint. And I took that role. The, the guy I took over for was still staying with the company, but he was moving on to a different role. So he trained me. And I just remember being like, Oh my gosh, this is a lot. (laughs) Like this is a big job. And so for those people that are familiar with Sarner a software company, healthcare software company, and within cerner like cerner developed all its own um basically packages to support a hospital each of the departments within a hospital well when we did that especially back when i was there pre the cloud you had to sell a bunch of hardware and other software to enable your cerner system to work and so that was the group within cerner that i worked that i supported from a finance perspective so you have a lot of things going on with outside vendors and partners that most everybody else didn't have to worry about internally. So my job was a little bit different, had a different spin than most of my counterparts. And uh, it was a very dynamic group that I supported. And so I learned for the first year, year and a half, you know, just foundationally from the bottoms up, how this business operated. Um, I had, you know, typical accounting responsibilities, but also forecasting responsibilities. And so I had to work very closely with the business unit leadership to understand what they're, you know, where are we going to be from a, from a p at the end of the quarter. And I got to live through um, the day when I went in for, to prepare for close week. And I saw my boss and he said, I need your numbers by like, Monday night because we were going to miss for the quarter and they had to know like how bad it was going to be. And so we did pretty much like a week's worth of work in 36 hours to come up with a plan. And then the day that we pre-announced that we weren't going to hit our earnings, I think the stock dropped 67% that day. And it was like, the the fifth floor of the building where accounting says, I mean, it's like somebody had died. It was like, you just worked so hard only to miss, you know, and that horrible feeling. Um, but it was, it was good experience to live through what that feels like. And so I stuck with that role for probably about a year and a half. And then I got to the point where, again, I was kind of like, okay, I got to get this. What what else is out there? And the, uh, the vice president that I supported was like, well, why don't you come over and run one of the groups on our side? And so I, I moved from being a finance person to being more of, of a, you know, we called a practice manager. So I inherited a team of about 25 people. And I'd never managed that many people before. They were kind of an eclectic group, uh, a group of very administrative type people. Um, and then this kind of a group of maybe more dynamic, like, you know, kind of moldable people. And for the next three and a half years, we grew revenue and gross margin um, quarter over quarter for 13 straight quarters. And I took probably 25 people down to 13 at the end of the day. and. We implemented systems and processes, and we totally revolutionized kind of that little book of business that pretty much up to that point had been a flat line. And to be thrown into a leadership position like that with really not a lot of experience was probably, looking back, one of my favorite success stories. Um, this, you know, 28 year old girl who didn't really know what she was doing and. My mantra at the time was there's got to be a better way because everything that we did was like, why do we do it that way? And who thought of that? And it's just it was nobody cared enough to make it different. And we made it all different. And I am still to this day, friends with several of the people that were on that team. And it's like one of those shared experiences that you have. And it's just kind of fun for a little while. And so I did that for like three and a half years. And kind of got to the end of that and it ended up in a business development role. When my last couple, I think six-ish months at Cerner, which was a whole different, whole different ball game. Um, But again, like kind of the story of my career is I'll give it a whirl. I'll see what I can do. (laughs) Yeah. I'll try that.
2: (laughs) So, When you got thrown into this job with the uh, 25 Uh, people on your team was it that wasn't your first kind of leadership role where you actually had people reporting to you from a hr org chart perspective or was it
0: no but for that many people it was yeah Yeah. i mean Mm -hmm. i'd managed like a handful of people but not 25 people that were i would say um not all interested in really what they were doing
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've had those people before, uh, yeah. <laughs> so what did you lean on, Amy? then like you so you're thrown in this position, so you you've had direct reports, but not this many, and you're also doing something outside your kind of core accounting finance you know uh, expertise so uh, what were some of the things or people you leaned on at that time to learn to get better?
0: There were a handful of people on the team who'd been there a little while who you knew, like knew what they were talking about. They were reliable and they had good ideas. And partly you just had to ask, you know, like what, if you sat down with somebody and you, you know, like, well, why do you do what you do? Well, I don't know. There's a story about these, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but they did a study at one time where they took five gorillas and they put them in a room with a ladder and they put bananas at the top of the ladder. Have you ever heard this? And these gorillas would, you know, all try to go up the ladder to get the bananas and they would spray this water on them that like uh, that hurt until they would get off the ladder. And so the gorillas all became trained not to go up the ladder to get the bananas and then one by one they would take one of the old gorillas out put a new one in and the new gorilla would try to go up the ladder and then all the gorillas would pull them down because they didn't want to all get sprayed with water because of negative reinforcement so one by one they take these old gorillas out and put the new ones in and so at the end of the day you're left with five new gorillas none of which will go up the ladder but none of whom know why either they just won't do it And so like that mantra is everywhere in the corporate world. So many places like, well, why do you do what you do? I don't know. They told me this is how I'm supposed to do it. Okay. Well, does that still make sense to you? You know, like, is there something about that, that you can't explain why you do it? And so many times like people want to do what they're told. But they also sometimes do that, even though they know it's probably not the best thing to do. And so if you come in and you empower them and say, well, I want to hear what you think. And well, what if we did it this way? And how do we learn whether we should still do it that way or kind of empowering people to use their voice and to use, you know, I don't I don't. It's one thing to have a job and just come punch a clock, right, but you, I want people to thrive and to feel involved and included. And this was kind of my first foray into really understanding, like, how do you, how do you create a team, not just people that work together, but a true team that's invested in an outcome that might work, mean working late or on weekends or whatever, but because they want to, not because I've told you you have to. And probably that experience has fueled the rest of my career in terms of, I love being a manager now. Like I work so hard at being the person that people want to work for, not the person people have to. um, And that was the first time that I felt that, that like you can get a group of people to do something amazing, If you do it the right way so i don't know i don't know if i answered your question i kind of just went off i mean
2: (laughs) no it's it's great i mean i I, i'm a big believer um that people want to be part of something bigger than themselves at work so you know i think that's the job of the leader to create that type of environment so i love it but i'm i'm still interested in like you know was there mentors that gave you leadership advice i mean you i did i had heard that story before you told me over coffee once about the the, the gorilla thing so you did tell me that one as well as you know was, was there books you read on it the, the kind of or I, just it was just innate in you
0: i think a lot of it was trial and error to be honest um i mean i've always been a a a a reader and so read a lot of books always trying to you know find the new thing I didn't know that I intentionally during that time did that probably a lot of try it and see what works and what doesn't work and go from there and I don't remember having yeah obviously like my boss and people within the organization that would ask for help occasionally but nobody was really like Giving me play by play. It was, it was kind of make it up as we went along. And I think early on I was able to have a group, kind of a, a smaller group of people that were maybe like my direct reports who kind of caught on and glommed on to like, okay, let's let's see what how we can do this. And that group stayed with me that whole time. And some of them stayed you know, even beyond when I left that team and it wasn't the most exciting team to be on in the company. It was kind of one of these like, you know, stepchildren, if you will. So, but a, a lot of people from that team grew up in the organization into, you know, managerial and, and, and higher positions. So that was a basis for, we kind of just had this small group that just figured it out as we went. I, can't, I don't know, I can't really point to anything else that kind of got me through it, <laughs> ingenuity. Yeah, no, that's fine, <laughs> that's
2: fine. Um, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, I I got my uh, MBA uh, at uh, University of Missouri at Kansas City and I did it uh, at, at night, so uh, much different experience than Darden, but I'm, I'm curious, did Darden, I mean, outside of the core courses that you usually go through an MBA did they have any leadership type courses there or uh, it was or you just learned by the seat of your pants in terms of you know getting thrown into group projects and you know the group dynamics team dynamics from that perspective
0: yeah they had um, they did have some leadership courses they had entrepreneurship courses too some of the more like kind of less textbooky like finance type things they they had some some more I would say creative type courses I think I took a few of those I don't know I do feel like at the time like thinking back now I don't know how I knew what to do I kind of went by gut to be honest quite a bit of it I think (laughs) it's interesting because in some ways I'm a pretty conservative person and then in other ways I'm like screw it. How bad can it be? Like, let's just see if it works. <laughs> right. yep. I've maybe been lucky in that. Some of the, sometimes when it mattered that we did okay and came out um, in a better place, it was interesting. I mean, it wasn't all like fun because we probably let go half the team over the course of six to nine months, just because the people weren't the right people for like, they were, they were good for how the, how the job had been, but we were, you know, implementing a lot more system type stuff. And it wasn't just clerical anymore. You know, you had to be critical thinker and you had to do things and just not everybody we had fit that profile. And so, you know, managing people out, probably got to the point where people were afraid to come to work on Friday because we kept letting people go on Friday and so they would walk in and be like who's it gonna be today? <laughs> like oh, <geez>. okay, maybe <laughs> we need to pick a different day of the week to uh, let somebody go. So it was like that was hard. you know I had never like yeah. fired anybody before or said they weren't meeting their expectations and to do it time and time and time again and but it was it was necessary uh to get to where to what the job that needed to be done it, you had to be able to do it um yeah you, know, you like to tell yourself those people found roles that were better for them <laughs>
2: after they were gone
0: and i, I do hope like i think most time did. they
2: do though you know they really do cuz yeah. they're not happy doing the role right
0: yeah but. that's hard so that was a growing you know that that was growth experience too, in a in a less positive way. But having to live through all of that and, and see what an impact that you are to people and their livelihood and, and how do you make sure you hire the right person the first time, that is something that, you know, the cost of turnover in an organization, I wish as a PL, like as a person who produces PLs, that there was a line that said turnover or cost of bad hiring because yeah. it's hidden everywhere. And it, it's easy to explain away when you can't see it. But when you really go to think about, um, especially tur- companies with high turnover, the impact that that can have, it's, it can be significant. So yeah, I learned some of my, the pitfalls too during that time period.
2: And then did you make a conscious choice to take a business development role after that at Cerner? I mean, that's a kind of another kind of, hey, I'm bored, maybe I've done <laughs> what I need to do and now I'm going to take a biz dev role.
0: Yeah. So it was kind of situational actually at the time. You know, I had said, you know, I might be interested in trying something different. And at the time, Cerner had tried to develop for years its own like financial package that never kind of got off the ground. And we had a strong partnership with Oracle, which is funny now that you think about it. Um, But every Cerner platform was run on an Oracle database. So all Cerner clients were Oracle customers. Well, we took that partnership and decided we were gonna try to sell Oracle's uh, at the time EBS financial solution to Cerner clients instead of trying to develop an in-house financial package. And so one of my colleagues, went and sold Oracle EBS to a client who was implementing Cerner and they looked at me and they said, well, Amy, you know, how did finances work? Like, why don't you take this project on? And so I had a, a customer with a signed contract and I, that's pretty much all I had. And they put me in charge of trying to figure this out. And I had a guy I was partnered up with who I had never met before. He was also a Cerner guy. And he and I spent the next, I don't know how many months flying all around the country, trying to work with an implementation partner at a client who was still implementing their Cerner system to implement a financial solution that really wasn't like, we didn't know how to sell what we were selling. We just sold it. You know, the first of a kind is always a guess by everyone. And it, it just was, it was challenging and that they were the expectation was to go get it successfully launched at this client and then go they gave me a quota right to go sell it some more and the first time you talk to anybody they say well who's doing it today and you say well we're in the middle of an implementation like call us back when it's done (laughs) right you don't have a reference you don't know if it works uh and the project was going sideways that we had pretty pretty hard and I don't know if it ever ended up being successful, to be honest. We tried so hard and we made progress, but even in the six six to eight months or whatever I was in that position, it never was implemented while I was there. So it was challenging circumstance. Um, and... And that's kind of like, that's how innovative Cerner was, right? Like you just tried it and you, sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. And, um, but a lot of times those bets paid off and became, you know, very profitable partnerships across, you know, the business.
2: Yeah. So I think about that time, did you leave Cerner?
0: I did. Yep. That was my last position. That was, at Cerner was that position. And I, because I had been new to Kansas City, before I took that role, I decided to go with a consulting firm, because I decided that maybe I would get the chance to see more companies in the the city and get to know maybe I would find the place where I needed to go uh, by way of, you know, taking a more project-ish approach to interviewing companies, as opposed to, you know, just trying to land my next kind of job at a company and ironically I ended up staffed at the same client for almost my entire tenure of three plus years at uh when I was at Marcus (laughs) Fear. so that kind of backfired but it paid off later
2: you've been a CFO for I don't know how many years but at least for three or four maybe five companies um was, was that your defined career path uh
0: I don't know that I've ever had a defined career path. I'm just kind of like take the next step that's in front of me. um, That feels like the right thing at the time. I, I, I will say when I achieved, when I achieved the role of CFO, I did feel like I got somewhere, like it felt like a big accomplishment. Um, And I feel like I felt like I made my parents proud. I don't know. Maybe that sounds silly, but that, you know, you they've in, invested so much in supporting me and helping me get to where I am, and um, I felt like like that was something that not paying them back necessarily, but to show that I valued what they had invested in me and that had worked hard to get to a you know a significant place in my career, and that that was meaningful.
2: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I mean that's a, to be a C-suite member, uh, chief financial officer is incredible. So one of the one of your um, stops was at Torch AI. So in in the cybersecurity artificial intelligence space. So obviously AI is you know it's in. I, I don't know if we Googled AI how yeah. many um, billions uh, of. Uh, postings would come up, but uh, what what was that like being in the AI space in, you know, the, the last couple of years?
0: I mean, it's such a fluid space and there's, there's so much activity right now in AI. And I think, I didn't really know what it meant when I went there. I just was like, oh, this is, this is a great sector to be in and an opportunity to learn. It's like every place else. And AI is, is still, it's based on something, right? Like something doesn't go from not knowing anything to knowing everything. You have to train it and you have to have basically, basically teach it before it can then extrapolate from there and understanding how that process worked, at least from the money girl, like from, from my way of thinking about it, the, the product people would probably, um, Keel over from things that I'm saying. But in my simple finance mind, like you still have to have enough, call it of a data set to to train the model to then go do what you want it to do. And that is almost like an asset. And you know, I was thinking about it financially and thinking, like, almost like, should that be on my balance sheet as this thing that I now have this model that I can go take to then say it's insurance policies that we're doing work with, I can now take that model and go to another insurance company. And I now only have to invest so much incrementally to adapt the model to be applicable to them. Um, And and so on it does, and it becomes even more valuable the more it learns, right? And so how to think about that from from a project standpoint, but also a financial standpoint and thinking about the implications to potentially like how my balance sheet might look, and understanding how we must adapt what we do because of these models and business models out there.
2: So you're the CFO at Capital Bridge. That's a fairly new position for you, a a new company for you. Uh, You sit on several uh, boards, volunteer boards. Uh, you are raising uh, children and doing all that. And then uh, since I know you, I know you're working on, I'll, I'm going to call it a connector app. So what what was the basis of you just wanted to, you know, again, have a a double major accounting and manufacturing engineer, you know, like is, you know, tell us about the app and what you're trying to do with that.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. So it all spurred from probably eight years ago, I woke up one day and I realized that while I had been in Kansas City for quite some time, at that time, probably almost 15 years, that I didn't really know a lot of people outside of the people I had worked with. I'm not, you know, I'm not from here. I'd moved here as an adult um, and I just had worked really hard and invested most of my time, either at work professionally or, you know, then getting married, having children. And I realized I needed to meet more people in a more networking type situation. And so I reached out to a good friend of mine who is one of the most connected people that I know. And I like, would you introduce me to somebody? Uh, And she did. She introduced me to um, an attorney who's a good friend of hers. And then she introduced me to some people and I just started this networking journey. And at first I would say I was probably quantity over quality uh, in that you know, when you when you dip your foot in that pool and you're not used to to swimming in it, it, it can be very overwhelming. I mean, the, the thing about Kansas City that has always impressed me is how every person I met during that time period um, was open to meeting and they would also ask me, what what can I do to help you? And they would follow through and they meant it. And, and even though they didn't know me, right? Um, and that was my first foray into like what it meant to network and to really have this group of people that, you know, knows you to certain degrees, but is is there to be a resource if necessary. And so I have this notebook I used to carry and I would tape the business card in there and then I would write notes about the person and where we met and what we talked about. And I this became this notebook would get harder and harder to close because I had so many cards in there. Scott Havens used to um, tease me about my notebook. And, and so I, I just came to the point where I was like, I have all of this information, but if I didn't have my notebook, I would write on a random sheet of paper, right? Like take notes and then I would lose it or I wouldn't be able to find it. And I just like, i had i wanted a place where i could keep all of this information and you know when people tell you things about themselves it's not stuff when you're talking to them one on one it's not stuff that's on their linkedin page it's it's not stuff that you know they they're going to just publicize in general to the world it's it's stuff that they're telling you and that stuff meant something to me and so i started on the the journey of creating an app to basically be what I call a personal relationship management platform so it's it's, it's CRM ish but without the sales focus um, and it's really intent to bring people closer together and um, to help just really nurture relationships between the people that you know I'm I've met and want to keep in touch with because you know it's it's If I, if they ever need to find me or I need to find them and, you know, I can be of use to them, um, but people that matter in my life. It's a different, it's not social media based. It's very much like my diary um, for the people that I know and want to make sure that I can be a good steward of that information and, and of that relationship really.
2: Now, and is your goal with the app to make it generally available to people to, yep. so they can use it also?
0: Yeah, so there today there's a website, um, and we are in the midst of developing our actually native app uh, right now. So hopefully, I don't know the timeline yet, but it's coming along nicely. And I'm excited because uh, yeah. the group I'm working with has done a great job taking my initial vision and simplifying it and making it, I think, very user friendly. So I'm excited.
2: Yeah, love it. I can't wait till it comes out. I did do some testing on the app version. So, yeah, well, Amy, uh, I'd love to help two groups of people. So I'd love your advice. The first group, and we kind of touched on it earlier, but recent college graduates, we're talking here in June of 2023, a lot of people graduated last month in May. What advice do you have for them as they pursue their first uh, professional job?
0: Good question. Try to find what you love doing. Like when you have jobs that feel like jobs, they don't last long because they um, they can you can learn from them, but you don't you're not yourself necessarily when you do them. And I think the the more you know, people say find your passion, and I, I struggle with that phrase because. Like, I don't know that I have found a passion necessarily, but I found a place where I fit and I'm good. And I feel like I add value and it took me a while to get there. And so I think the other thing I would say is find the right manager, find a manager that will help you be a better person. And I think most of my jobs have my success or failure in a role has been driven by who I work for. And that relationship, especially earlier in your career, when you are so beholden to that person to help you, that that relationship, I think is one that when you find a good when you find a good manager, it can make a total difference in not just your current role, but your opportunities, you know outside of that role within the organization and not just having somebody that wants you to do all the work and then take credit for it. Then um, in those roles too. And so it's hard to know going in, but, you know, trust your gut, I think is another one like, um, and sometimes you, I'll never forget walking down the street with my dad, my first job being frustrated that I hadn't gotten promoted yet. And him saying, you have to pay your dues. And I did not want to hear that. And I was like, but I have, no, you haven't you know, like, I think especially to the younger generations, like instant gratification and that, you know, like, even I remember my dad being like, you just put your head down, keep doing a good job and you'll get to where you need to be. And it's hard knowing like when you've done that long enough and, and when you, you know, you're just not in the right place. So I don't know that you ever get old enough to figure that out. (laughs) Right.
2: Um, the second group I love to help is, uh, and again, we touched a little bit on this also, but you now you're most, you know, your early career, you're usually individual contributor, but now you get promoted, you are a manager. So you're leading a group of people. What advice would you have for them as they begin their leadership journey?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, for me, so much of, of business and management comes down to the golden rule, <laughs> like, Don't, don't treat somebody how you wouldn't want to be treated and be the boss you want to have because when people truly trust you with their career and their, their livelihood, I mean, people aren't just working for you. Like their family is dependent on you too. Right. And when people know you have their back and you're in the trenches with them when you need to be, and they truly want to work for you, they will give you their all. And you can lead by fear and intimidation, or you can lead because you're there with them. Um, it's, a, it's a team and you're in it together and it's, uh, it's about all of you. And the, I think when you're able to, to do that, you get something from people that's not just a working bond. It's I have your back, right? Um, I've managed people through some very challenging circumstances and how I, I hired someone who was going through a major life crisis in the middle of a crisis, knowing full well what, you know, he was getting ready to face, but because he was a really good person and he deserved that opportunity. And then we just got through, like, we worked together to get to the get him through what he needed to do personally, but because of that, he and I have a working relationship that I think is an, another level than with, you know a lot of other people ever get to. And that being there for people when they need it, even if it means it's outside of working hours or different things, like if you truly want people to do their best, then you have to do your best for them as well.
2: Yeah great advice great advice Amy you're phenomenal you uh, I love talking to you uh, uh, well thanks again uh, enjoy the rest of your day thank you I just think uh, Amy is so great um, uh, my friend Harry Campbell who was episode number one on our podcast mm-hmm. um, he would say Amy's an attractor you know like she said in the podcast I work hard to be the leader that people want to work for so i thought that was phenomenal as Mm -hmm. well as you know she's so smart um oh yeah mensa (laughs) i don't know who our other guests but she might be our first Mensa, mensa uh uh guest um you know, it reminds me, you know, when she went to Darden, she felt she was maybe average amongst all the people because she went early on mm-hmm. uh, in her 20s Uh it reminded me of the story to bring up Harry again. Harry has this seven word exercise where you ask uh, people, what are the seven words to describe, you know. Jeff Palaccio or Joe Deshawn, and they ha- and it's easy to come up with the first three or four, but the last, you know, five, six, seven are harder. So I did the exercise to 56 people. Well, 56 people responded, and I told Harry, I said, yes, yeah, smart was my number one. Half, the, uh, half of the 56 thought I was smart. He goes, yeah, and the other half thought you're, you're, you're an idiot. So um, <laughs> it, it all puts it in perspective. But uh, what was your takeaway, Joe?
1: Well, she was immediately a kindred spirit to me because when she mentioned that she was a COBOL programmer, and I have a definite special place in my heart uh, for COBOL, uh, having been a COBOL programmer for many years, uh, I just think... That's, why,
2: that's a, why you and I get along. I was a COBOL programmer. Because you were a COBOL programmer. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, COBOL is just such an elegant language, I think, and and there's still... There's still a need for COBOL programmers out there. They're um, they're still uh, out there. Young
2: young viewers, please look it up on Wikipedia. COBOL, C O B
1: O L Common Business Oriented Language. COBOL is literally older than R and Python and C. Uh, it was it was one of the originals, and it's still around, especially in Financial and business and insurance industries. It's still out there, and I think it's great language.
2: And um, who was the like the woman? Uh, like she was like uh, Hopper, Grace, uh, Grace Hopper. Hopper, Grace Hopper. Yeah, yep. she was in yeah. the forties, maybe.
1: And she invented COBOL or set out some of the original uh, some of the original uh, syntax for for COBOL. The whole idea of is is that it's supposed to be an English based language. That is, you write things as if you would be describing them. So going from pseudo, remember pseudocode? Going from pseudocode directly into COBOL was just a matter of filling in the blanks.
2: Okay, we're starting to lose like half yeah, our audience. Yeah, okay, well, we're... <laughs> let's go on.
1: The other thing that I thought was really uh, interesting uh, was then you asked something about when she was a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she, um, she said, well, I always knew that I wanted to run a store because i wanted to run a cash register and i can see that in in myself not 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 necessarily a cash register but i can see that kind of innocence the innocence that a child thinks that owning a store is all about just running a cash register that that's actually what it is and that and what could be more fun than pushing those buttons and running a cash register i think that was Kind of cool. And then, and then what she do, she ends up uh, getting uh, a a career in finance and uh, she's doing money stuff all along anyway.
2: Yeah. Enterprise cash register. She's
1: running, running, (laughs) literally running the cash register of the large corporations that she was working for. So I thought that was really interesting.
2: Joe, any leadership advice uh, based on the episode you want to,
1: we are going to stick with the COBOL theme just one more time. When I'm gonna go back to Wally, the famous COBOL programmer. One time he said a wise person once told me that you can't boil an egg with a stick, but I can threaten you with a stick unless you boil an egg for me.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.